Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Frater R.C. here, and this is the Magic Without Fears Podcast. Testing, testing. I never thought, I never thought I would be part of a Crowley conference in any way, shape, or form. Yates Conference? Yes. But since I am here, let's uh, dive into it. And I approach Crowley very much in an academic way because I'm, uh, as a Yates person, I'm more inclined to think that he did what Crowley did, but better and did it in secrecy without really having to create his own religion around it. Though, as we know from the Celtic mysteries, he more or less did try to create his own sort of nationalistic Irish religion around Celtic magic in the Druid tradition. So, he might have just failed where Crowley succeeded. That is a possibility. But when I look at Crowley, what interests me is the stuff I didn't know. As a young teenager, I read his autohagiography. I read the Book of Thoth. I read Book of Lies. I was quoting it to everyone who would listen, and even when they didn't want to listen, of course, uh, grade 8 biography on Crowley to try and shock my Walter school teachers, but they were just like, oh, yeah, we know that, dude. So, what don't I know about Crowley? I didn't realize he was quite such a magical psychonaut. I mean, really a proto-chaot in a way, because he did all these experiments with the intention of seeing how they aided things like pathworking, astral travel, sensitivity training, psychic development, even Enochian aether work and stuff like that. So Crowley really did a lot for us that we probably overlook and ignore due to his shenanigans at times. And that's what I want to look at today, is I want to look at, given my pathworking the other day of the Fool card, and given some of my friend uh, Chris Bennett it's research that he's uh, pointed me at recently. I want to look at some things I didn't really know before and how they affect me as a magician and influence me as a scholar of the history of spiritual development and entheogenic use in particular as we lead up to Crowley Mass 2020, October 12th. So shout out. And let's dive into it, shall we? To begin, we have to go back to sperm and menses. As Christian sacraments. The idea of restoring light, says Chris Bennett, back to the kingdom of light, the personality of Mary, and the subject of erotic worship amongst the Gnostics, converge most powerfully in the long-lost Gnostic tractate, The Question of Mary, referred to in Epiphanius's 315-402 AD, Refutation of Gnostic Practices. In the following tale of autoeroticism involving Jesus, we can see the core meaning behind the orgiastic worship of certain Gnostic groups. Quote, Jesus gave them a revelation when he took them with him up the mountain. He prayed and then took a woman out of his side and began to have sexual intercourse with her. He caught his ejaculated semen in order to demonstrate that such behavior was necessary for us to live. Upon seeing the Savior consume his own flowing semen, Mary Magdalene was in such a state of shock that she fell to the ground. After lifting her back up, Jesus responded with remarks that were also used in the New Testament's Gospel of John. Why do you doubt me, O you of little faith? If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
John 3.12, and unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, John 6.53. Bennett says, in regards to the imagery of Jesus pulling a woman from his side, this could conceivably suggest the practice of certain aspects of the forbidden Canaanite religion, which the high place of a mountain for the autoerotic rite also suggests. Perhaps Jesus found one of the many erotic Asherah figurines that were used in fertility rites for visual symbolic sexual stimulation and have turned up so prevalently in archaeological surveys of the area. Further, the sacramental use of semen, both eaten and rubbed on the body, quote, had a long tradition in Canaanite religion, Allegro, 1980. As shall be discussed, other elements of the story of Jesus also clearly show aspects of Canaanite tradition. A connection between the religion that Jesus was preaching and the Canaanite tradition would account for the New Testament references, which appear soon after Jesus' final disappearance and simultaneous with the birth of Christianity to erotic acts taking place at the Christian agape ritual, the love feast, and recorded to have originated from the fertility practices of Baal Peor. This early tradition of erotic behavior at the love feasts indicates that the question of Mary, although not referred to on the historical record before Epiphanius's 4th century refutation, could conceivably be a secret account of an actual apostolic tradition. The 20th century psychologist Carl Jung saw profound symbolism in the autoerotic tale of Jesus eating his own semen. That so shocked the early church fathers. He commented that, quote, for the medical psychologist, there is nothing very lurid about it. Jung continued stating that similar shocking imagery can appear in both dreams and intense psychological treatment. The famed psychologist and Gnostic aficionado felt that by the references to John 3.12, the author of the tractate, intended that this was to be seen as symbolic of Christ as the inner man, who had to be reached through the path of self-knowledge, i.e., the kingdom of heaven is in you. But other Gnostic documents clearly portray that there was a very literal side to the semen-eating described in the ancient Gnostic writing. In fact, Epiphanius recorded that the Gnostic writers of the Question of Mary interpreted a saying they borrowed from John 6.62 as Jesus' justification of the act. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? As meaning, that is when you see the ejaculated semen restored to its source, i.e. the substance of the Son is restored to the Father. Conceivably, this belief could have arisen out of the original New Testament Greek word for seed, sperma, referring to something sown, including the male sperm, strong, 1979. And Jesus' use of the word in an explanatory statement of the parable concerning seed that, quote, the one who sowed the good seed, sperma, is the son of man. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The harvesters are angels, Matthew thirteen thirty-seven to 39. Through the harvest, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, Matthew thirteen forty-three. a conception which, as we shall show, is completely in line with the Gnostic beliefs concerning the ingestion of seminal fluids. Possibly, also, contributing to the development of the Gnostic sacramental ingestion of sperm may be passages from the New Testament's Gospel of John, a text which some researchers have suggested may have been penned by a Gnostic author. Interestingly, it was with quotes from the Gospel of John that the question of Mary had Jesus defend his sacrificial ingestion of the sacred bodily fluid, and these appear in a story where Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life, telling the disbelieving disciples, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This bread is my flesh. I tell you the truth, unless you can eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6.32-53 The bread of life and living water of John's Jesus are present within himself. This peculiar doctrine caused many of Jesus' followers to question him. Quote, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? John 6.60. A query that caused Jesus to give the above-quoted reply of, What if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? As a direct result of this curious new teaching, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. John 6.66. 6, 6. 
It is likely due to such an interpretation of the above scripture that the Ophites would later, as the Christian love feast or agape, sacrificially offer up sperm and menses as sacraments with the exclamation, quote, We bring to thee this oblation, which is the very body of Christ. Adding to this curiosity is the fact that the Latin word mass, very similar to the Catholic Church's Latin name for the Eucharistic meal, mass, translates as male seed leaving one to wonder just what the original Christian Eucharist was. The Roman Catholic teachers explained that the word used for their Eucharistic ceremony, Mass, means dismissal, and is believed to have been derived from the Latin words which are used at the ceremony's end, ite missa est, go, you are dismissed. But this is not certain. The association with Mass, as in male seed, certainly seems more in tune with the origins of the Eucharistic concept of body and blood of the Lord, when compared with the later Catholic term believed to mean dismissal, as well the etymological connection between the Latin mass, male seed, and mass would seem to be more far-reaching. Let's not forget that, of course, in, it's traditionally called the sacrifice of the mass. It doesn't make sense to say the sacrifice of the dismissal, but rather the sacrifice of the bodily sperma, I suppose. Similar to the Gnostic ideas concerning New Testament scriptural interpretation relating to the returning of seed, sperma, back to its source for building up the body of light, Epiphanius records that the Gnostic sects also interpreted the Old Testament's first psalm as making secret references to the sacramental ingestion of semen. Quote, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. The yield of fruits in season was interpreted as seminal ejaculation in pleasure, whereas the leaf does not wither meant to them, we do not let it fall to the ground, but we eat it up ourselves. Panarion 26, 8. Similar interpretations were made concerning Revelation 22, where the healing leaves became the sacramental sperm of the tree of life, and the twelve crops of fruit yielding each month. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 22-2, Revelation, where were seen as female menses, quote, male worshippers often used ritual masturbation, both of self and other males, and fellatio in order to gather semen. It is possible that interrupted forms of anal and phallic vaginal intercourse were also undertaken. With ritual masturbation, the male devotees would recite passages from the New Testament. These hands ministered to my necessities as to those who were with me. Acts 20.34 RSV. And let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he might be able to give to those in need. Ephesians 4.28 RSV. Connor 1993. The Gnostic practice of ingesting seminal fluids and menses as sacraments is referred to as silexis and has to do with the conception of returning light back to its source. The Gnostics saw the human form is being created from the mixture of these two substances, and by ritually ingesting them, they believed that they were preventing the further entrapment of light in matter through the production of more children, and further ensuring and the salvation of that light through incorporating it with their own being, in preparation for the ascension back to the kingdom of light at the point of death. As Allegro explained of the similar practices amongst the later Gnostic Manichaeans, Thus, it was thought that the digestive processes were an essential part of this sacred duty. The living spark of the good remained in the body, and the rest passed out with the excreta. But whereas with lesser mortals the good thus rescued was merely entrapped once more in any offspring they might engender, the elect took care not to beget offspring, and so they built up a store of this divine substance within themselves." They thus became more and more the children of light, the same substance as their heavenly Father, until the divine substance could be returned to the fullness, or pleroma, from which it had come the millennium could not dawn. 
those who had been especially favored by God with an unusually high degree of spiritual illumination, the elect, were the chosen vessels through whom light was channeled back to heaven. Their seed was powerfully endowed with that semi-divine substance and was a means of importing grace to their followers and offering back to God his own. Female seed, thought in those times to be represented in menstrual blood, was similarly imbued with the good, and both elements formed an essential part of the sacred meal of the Gnostic Agape celebrations, their Eucharist. Allegro, 1980. The reverence of the Gnostics paid to this erotic religious technique can be seen in the following hymns, which make reference to the orgiastic Eucharistic act. It is I who am you, and it is you who are me, and wherever you are, I am there, and I am sown in all, and you collect me from wherever you wish, and when you collect me, it is your own self that you collect. The Gospel of Eve. I stood on a lofty mountain, and saw a gigantic man and another, a dwarf, and I heard as it were a voice of thunder, and drew nigh for to hear. And he spake unto me, and said, I am thou, and thou art I, and wheresoever thou mayest be, I am there. In all I am scattered, and whensoever thou willest, thou gatherest me, and gathering me thou gatherest thyself. I recognized myself, and gathered myself together from all sides. I sowed no children for thy ruler, but I tore up his roots, and gathered together my limbs that were scattered abroad. Sayings of the Lord. Menses and sperm, both of which were considered ritually unclean by Judaic and Christian standards, have not always been viewed this way. Coming from the vaginal source through which life enters the world, menstrual fluid has been thought to be imbued with magic powers in all cultures. Even the strict taboos surrounding menses in Judaism demonstrates an ongoing fear and awe of what had been both a magic and sacred substance in surrounding and pre-existing traditions. In Volume 1, the use of menstrual blood and fertility rites was discussed briefly as well. This bodily fluid has been ingested as a medicine and or sacrament in India, Tibet, China, and European alchemical rites. In alchemy, menstrual fluid was believed to hold special properties that could bestow health and vigor upon the partaker. In Indian Tantrism, a number of varieties of menstrual fluid were named each regarded as holding different properties. Sometimes, mixed with sperm, the menstrual fluid was, quote, drunk by the participating male and female, tantric adepts, because of inherent subtle and magical powers, or in scientific terms, its biochemical and electromagnetic properties, Kamphausen, 1991. It is here, with the tantric rites of India, that the ingestion of menses, and particularly sperm, by the aforementioned Gnostic groups, finds its strongest parallels. Like the phallus worship and masturbation of the Gnostics, in a tantric rite known as the Hand of Shiva, some yogis masturbate while repeating special mantras in worship of their own sexual organ. The men who worship their own phallus must then make an offering of the food, semen, with which they feed themselves. Shiva Purana, Vidya Sharva, Danielu, 1992. The tantras state that the nectar of life should be absorbed by the yogi himself, the plow, penis, and the bulls, testes, the wise man will use for plowing his own land and sowing his own seed so that he can eat his own fruit. In a gross form of spermipotation, the yogi directs the discharged bindu, sperm, into his own mouth during certain asanas, such as the headstand. Walker, 1982. As in Gnosticism, where the elect could bestow grace on lesser initiates with a sacramental gift of their sperm, in Tantrism, semen is imbued with magical powers, and a drink containing the sperm of a respected master is consumed by his disciples. Sperm represents the genetic heritage handed down from generation to generation. Danielu, 1992. In relation to Jesus eating his own sperm, it is interesting to note that in tantric rites, a man offering sperm through masturbatory practices was referred to as a fish, a popular symbol of the living Christ. Sacramental ingestion of sperm was also practiced in ancient Thrace and Greece, where they believed that in homosexual love, quote, the virtues of the lover were transferred to the beloved. It was believed that this happened physically through the transmission of the semen which contained a part of the essence of the soul. 
Wellesley in 1973. In his groundbreaking Sex and Drugs, Robert Anton Wilson pointed to a number of medieval alchemical manuscripts as making hidden references to the act of ingesting one's seed, and noted that it is still practiced by modern occultists who believe that sperm, quote, contains a real spiritual substance that is beneficial when consumed. The semen contains his life force and gives one the extra energy needed to reach the higher mystical trances. Wilson, 1973. Wilson refers to the famed occultist Aleister Crowley, who likened the right to eating live oysters, which he noted made one feel a surge of energy that was not present when eating dead cooked food. Interestingly, Crowley reinstituted the right as the Gnostic mass, showing his keen scholarly knowledge of this little-known and discussed occult practice. Crowley, who in a good Gnostic fashion likened himself to the great beast of Revelation, saw semen as the dew of immortality, noting that besides holding the future generations of man in its stream through time, it also contained the forces that made him and his father and his father's father before him. Crowley, 1913. Conceivably, this river of life could be traced back to the origins of life itself. Since this genetic heritage is passed on through the reproductive system, it is interesting to note that in ancient Hebrew, the term for memory and phallus appear to be related to the same root as deker and seker. Pope, 1977. As well, testes, as in testicles, comes from the root word meaning witnesses. As the Nag Hammadi Library's tractate, Allogenes, explains, If you seek with a perfect seeking, then you shall know the good that is in you. Then you will know yourself as well as one who derives from the God who truly pre-exists. For there shall come to you a revelation of that one by means of semen. Allegenes. Quote, scientific tests have shown that until it finally dies, ejaculated sperm maintains a subtle psychophysical connection with its owner, rather like a child with its mother. If, for example, a sperm is burned with acid, other ejected sperm from the same man will show a reaction, even though kept far removed. Interestingly, sperm also fight if brought into contact with sperms from another man. These fascinating facts drive the logic of certain rites of tantric and Gnostic magic that use semen. Douglas, 1997. In light of its practice amongst tantric adherents of kundalini yoga, it is not surprising to find that the sacramental ingestion of bodily fluids is particularly associated with the Judaic-influenced serpent cults whose practices and beliefs are connected with the same serpentine energy. As noted, the rites of the Ophites and the closely related Nassines, both of whose names have connotations of serpent, predate Christianity and may conceivably have had a profound influence on the beliefs and rites instituted by Jesus. Quote, Much of the Ophites' serpent worship and occult ritualism was probably derived from primitive paganism. Columbia, 1968. Primitive paganism being the orgiastic rites that were practiced throughout Canaan and adopted by the Israelites on and off ever since Balaam first seduced them into sin at Baal Peor. The Ophites and the Nassines saw the popular Gnostic image of the serpent biting its tail as symbolic of the cult's use of sexual excretions for building up the body of light for its restoration back to the kingdom of light, rather than for regeneration in a sense, quote, restoring the substance of the sun back to the father on a very physical level. They saw the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Naas, or Ophis, as the bringer of mystical wisdom, an act the serpent accomplished by sexually penetrating both of them. In honor of the serpent, the Nassines would let a live snake crawl over their consecrated bread before consuming it, and passing it from hand to hand as they joined in a circle for the ritual kiss of peace. Possibly, such a peculiar ritual could be related to the curious statement of Jesus in the earliest New Testament gospel. They will pick up snakes with their hands. Mark 16.18. Despite their libertarian sexual practices, the Nassines viewed phallic vaginal intercourse as exceedingly wicked, as by the potential of producing children. It prevented the return of the light trapped in matter back to the kingdom of light. 
the Nassines paid reverence to gods, including Jesus, in the form of phallic images and practiced ritual masturbation in celebratory worship of the male power, ingesting the spermal emissions as the highest sort of sacrament. Quote, Semen was referred to by the Nassines as the beauteous seeds of Benjamin, the water in those fair nuptials which Jesus changing made into wine. Connor, 1993. From the reference to Benjamin, we can see clearly that they associated their own rites with the sins which took place amongst the Benjamites. Part 1, Chapter 4 of this book, which of course is Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible by Chris Bennett. Thus, it is not surprising to find that ritual sodomy in the name of the serpent was also practiced by some Nassines who likened the act to Nas's sexual penetration and initiation of Adam as, quote, a way of opening up the passages of knowledge and thereby unsealing the blind eye of the flesh. Le Carrier, 1977. It's interesting to me because... In seminary, they did mention that one of the earliest forms of Christian church that were destroyed was the church of the hermaphroditical Jesus, and there was apparently many statues of Jesus with both sex organs, and that makes a lot more sense given this information about the Gnostic cults that were around and the different forms of Gnostic thought Jesus would have been exposed to. I guess uh, it's all fun and games till someone gets it in the third eye. (laughs) Moving on. Sexual gnosis. It is the instinctual forces, strong relationship to the sex drive, that accounts for much of the orgiastic worship within Gnosticism, Tantrism, and similar such schools, erotic techniques of invocation and communion with the divine. As the turn of the 20th century Gnostic aficionado Alistair Crowley noted, when you proved that God is merely a name for the sex instinct, it appears to me not far to the perception that the sex instinct is God. When discussing the Catholic Church's attitude towards the erotic activities and texts of Gnostic sects, we find ourselves once again reminded of certain Shaivite traditions. The Skanda Purana and Shiva Purana tell the story of how Shiva was walking through the forest one day with his holy lingam in hand, masturbating ecstatically, sprinkling his magic sperm around and seducing the wives of the Brahmin men. Quote, shocked. By the appearance and behavior of Shiva, the sages of the forest said to him, You have acted perversely. This is contrary to the scriptures. Your sexual organ will fall to the ground. When they had thus spoken, the sexual organ of this messenger of heaven, who was none other than Shiva, of the marvelous forms at once fell to the ground. The phallus burned everything before it. Wherever it went, all was consumed. It traveled through the underworld, in heaven, on the earth, never staying in one place. All the worlds and their inhabitants lived in anguish. Likewise, when the pious Catholic Church Fathers encountered the orgiastic Gnostic sects and their tradition of Jesus masturbating ecstatically on a mountaintop, they called down a similar curse, and lo, the sacred phallus of the Son of Man has been burning up through creation ever since, in the same manner as did Shiva's mythically scorned member. It is this separation from our natural sex drive that accounts for so much of the violence, war, and environmental devastation that the world is faced with. All such problems are about penetration, charge, and due to man's collectively misguided sex drive. Bigger guns, bigger steel phallus bombs, bigger cock-like rockets to fuck people up with. And finally, the biggest and last orgasm ever. At least that's the way things seem to be heading at this point. When faced with their similar dilemma concerning Shiva's rampaging lingam, the sages of the forest went to the god Brahma to ask him how to remedy the situation. When Brahma heard their story, he ridiculed them for their impotence and explained that the masturbating individual they had encountered was the Supreme Lord himself. Brahma explains that instead of cursing Shiva's lingam, they should have worshipped it, building it a pedestal in the form of a vagina, consecrating it with holy water and giving an invocation. You are the source of the universe the origin of the universe. You are present in everything that exists. The universe is but the form of yourself. O benevolent one, calm yourself and protect the world. Thus, in Shivaite tantric systems, man is seen as only a phallus bearer, lingadara, the servant of his sexual organ, 
Danielu, 1992. Interestingly, Revelation's John may have received a similar message concerning the phallus of the Son of Man during his entheogen-induced revelation. Quote, On his thigh, i.e. phallus, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19.16. In line with this, some have noted that the penis virtually becomes the Savior in some Gnostic systems. Matthews, 1992. Indeed, it is only by reacquainting ourselves with the primal sex instinct that lays at the very core of our consciousness and recognizing it for the sacred force that it is that we can ever hope to attain full realization both personally and collectively. As the Shiva Purana explains of phallus worship in the Indian counterpart of the Christian's latter days, the Kali Yuga. During the Kali Yuga, phallus worship is the most efficacious type of worship in the world. No symbol can compare with it. The sexual organ brings pleasure in this world and liberation in the next. In worshiping the phallus, man identifies himself with Shiva. There is nothing so sacred in the four Vedas as the worship of the Linga. This is the conclusion of all traditions. From the state of our modern world, we can see that similar reverence to the phallus of the Son of Man is once again needed in order to end its nearly 2,000-year rampage through creation. For it is only by coming to terms with the energy of this serpent that we can ever hope to come to terms with ourselves. Quote, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Mark 3.25 Quote, that unity of culture and nature, work and love, morality and sexuality, for which mankind is forever longing, this unity will remain a dream as long as man does not permit the satisfaction of the biological demands of natural, orgiastic, sexual gratification. The fact that man is the only species which does not fulfill the natural law of sexuality is the immediate cause of a series of devastating disasters. The external social negation of life results in mass death, in the form of wars, as well as in psychic and somatic disturbances of vital functioning. Reich, 1942-1971. And I believe that's Wilhelm Reich, if I'm not mistaken. What do you think, Chris? Yeah. Oh, Chris agrees. Wilhelm Reich. Okay, let's go on. Yeah. I've never done a podcast with uh, the author sitting uh, nearby before, but... Such is life. Such is Soma life. What kind of bird is that again? African grape. An bird. African grape. People have asked if it, if it talks, and it sounds just like you. Yeah. Like we run through a, a, a voice message system or something. Exactly like you run through a voice message system. Chris Bennett. Chris Bennett. All right, let's continue, folks. Not perceiving what was holy, the church fathers and similarly-minded Jews before them made sex evil. Further, they turned the holy image of the phallus into a serpent placed in constant battle with mankind, forever seated in its eternal position as tempter and agitator between the legs of Adam. So true. For those who don't know, when... Uh, Christian monastics first started declaring themselves celibates and worshipping in hermitages in the desert. They were considered heretics and often crucified or burned to the stakes by the Catholic Church. It wasn't for until uh, years later, a couple hundred years later, that Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologia put out the first theological argument for celibacy amongst clergy. But it wasn't actually brought into practice until criticisms from the counter-reformationists from the, sorry, for, eh, from the reformers caused the counter-reformation to clamp down on priests being married or having concubines and families, which was common practice up until about the 17th century, 18th century even. And today, of course, you can still be a married Catholic priest if you know the, how to work the loophole. You have to get ordained as a different kind of priest and then convert to Catholicism. They let you keep your wife, but you can't remarry once she dies or if she leaves you. It's similar to Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, polity amongst clergy. A modern myth. Having been partially awakened through the fumes of forbidden smoke, we found ourselves wandering through what was left of paradise in search of more forbidden fruits and knowledge. 
In our travels, we came upon a beast in the garden, a figure of supposed black magic enshrouded in darkness, a fellow Gnostic aficionado who claimed to be the very 666 of Revelation. The beast was much pleased at our noble quest and scoffed at the authorities' prohibitions, telling us, It is a lie, this folly against self. Fear not that any god shall deny thee this. I am the snake that giveth knowledge and delight in bright glory and stir the hearts of men with drunkenness. To worship me, take wine and strange drug, whereof I will tell my prophet and be drunk thereof. They shall not harm ye at all. Crowley, 1904-1981. He was much pleased to see our acquaintance with the holy hemp and our attempts to recloak it with myth, telling us that if this plant was not in fact the very fruit the tree of life, at least of that other tree, double and sinister and deadly, Crowley, 1912, unveiling to us that when he himself burned this sacred plant, the queen of heaven spoke to him, saying, quote, If thou burnest mine incense before thee, invoking me with a pure heart and the serpent flame therein, thou shalt come a little to lie in my bosom. Crowley, 1904. This last comment from the beast, otherwise known as Aleister Crowley, certainly brings to mind the symbolism incorporated in the Gnostic bridal chamber. In the individual's restoration back to the Pleroma, as well as the Canaanite sacred marriage and its use of cannabis incense, we can be sure that the learned occultist wrote these words with this relation in mind when he recorded them almost a century ago in his pivotal the Book of the Law. We can also be sure that when Crowley chose the title for his short but inspired work, where the above references to the Queen of Heaven and the Serpent appear, named The Book of the Law, he did so in ridicule of a similar book written by the hand of man that caused the disappearance of these same archetypes from the Hebraic religion, the Book of Deuteronomy. And actually one thing I'll say about that in, is in, we spend a lot of time in, in divinity school or, or theological colleges studying the, the creation of the book of Deuteronomy or its discovery, depending on what side of things you fall on during the you know, uh, reform of King Josiah. It's uh, quite, quite a controversy. Raised himself as a Plymouth Brethren, and as a child allowed to read little else but the inspired word of Scripture, Crowley recognized the hand of forgery in the Old Testament and followed suit, writing his own inspired text that restored aspects of both the pre-exilic religion of the Hebrews and Gnostic Christianity. And by pre-exilic, of course, we mean before the exile, the Babylonian exile, where they sat down by the waters of Babylon and wept. And that period, of course, led to many developments in early Judaism, and um, especially as it affected the uh, worship of the goddess Asherah, Mrs. Yahweh, as often referred to in uh, ancient graffiti. Besides a deep interest in the psychoactive sacraments of Gnosticism and alchemy, Crowley also had a deep interest in the role of sex as a means of self-realization and at the turn of the 20th century reintroduced many of the erotic rites and Eucharists of the libertarian Gnostic sects, much to the shock of his fellow citizens in Victorian England. As much as the fertility rites of Baal Peor evolved into the hieros gamos of Solomon's time, returning later as the marriage of subject and object that occurred in the Gnostic bridal chamber, so too did Crowley offer his own evolutionary contribution to the rite of the sacred marriage, cloaking the archetypal figures of the Queen of Heaven and the Phallic King under the Egyptian names of Nuit and Hadit. Crowley posited a sacred marriage that combined the collective state of mind of humanity as it stood during the matriarchal period, when the universe was conceived of nourishment drawn directly from the Great Mother combined with the introspective linear view of the patriarchal period marked by the yes-no commandments of the Father God. The marriage of these two opposing views resulted in the birth of a new deity that took from the best of both its parents, and which he referred to as the androgynous child god incarnate, Horus. 
This Horus is identical in all respects with the Gnostic Anthropos and represented the ever-borning common aspect at the root of the individual mind, the Jungian collective unconscious, finally after untold aeons of evolution, awakened into a deeper self-reflection in the tabernacle of its microcosmic image, the body of man and woman. It is interesting to see that Revelation itself contains references to the Queen of Heaven in the act of giving birth to the infant God. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. She gave birth to a son who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Revelation 12, 1-5 it would seem the Great Mother is now rightly not content to play a role in the shadows, but wishes to actively partake of helping rear her divine child of humanity. Her return is clearly marked by the success of women's liberation and the timely rise in her worship amongst eco-feminists and neo-pagan witches alike. Other references to Aleister Crowley are found in the extensive footnotes of Chris Bennett's Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible. In the occult work claiming to be a modern rendition of the medieval Necronomicon, referred to in the obscure writings of H.P. Lovecraft, 1890-1937, but likely a forgery, the well-read editor and author of the introduction, Simon, convincingly claims that the Gnostic god Eao corresponds with Ea, the Lord of Waters, Simon, 1977. Simon refers to IAO in references to Aleister Crowley, 1875-1947, who had adopted the god after familiarizing himself with the existing Gnostic material and forming the Gnostic Catholic Church, reintroducing many of the ancient cult's sacramental worship forms, i.e. sex and drugs. Crowley himself, extremely well-read, is quoted in the book's foreword with the statement, Our work is therefore historically authentic, the rediscovery of the Sumerian tradition. Simon's Necronomicon is apparently a book on Sumerian magic, the incantation of the gates, or prayers needed to ascend through the succeeding seven spheres and past their gatekeepers. The Necronomicon was supposedly revealed to the mad Arab, Abdul al-Hazred, in the 8th century, after he camped by an inscribed ancient stone pillar which he set up and unwittingly, he burned a strange grass that grew in the area in front of it to stay warm. The effects of the grass have been seen to be obvious reference to cannabis. Joffrey, 1979. In the words of the Mad Arab, with the assistance of a strange grass that gives the mind great power to travel tremendous distances into the heavens, I received the formulae for the amulets and talismans, which provide the priest with safe passage among the spheres wherein he may travel in search of the wisdom. Simon, 1977. The idea of a strong Babylonian influence on the Gnostic cosmology is guaranteed by Hippolytus's references to the Gnostic treatise on an old Babylonian cosmogonic scripture. Mead, 1900, a creation myth that contained references to Thalassa and Thalath, Tiamat, or World Mother of the Babylonians. Mead, 1900, Ea's son, Marduk, created the material world from the parts of the all-mother Tiamat, and much of the complicated Gnostic cosmology developed out of this earlier and simpler myth, as did the Old Testament's Genesis 1. As quoted by Doan, 1882, it can also be seen that Jesus' fish imagery has connections with Moses' apprentice Joshua, the son of Nun, i.e. fish dragon. Jesus is the customary Greek form for the common Hebrew name Joshua, Encyclopedia Britannica, 5th edition, and it is likely that through his initiation by John, Jesus saw himself as a sort of second Joshua, the deliverer of Israel. The next note of interest is that, quote, in England, hemp was considered one of the sources of broomsticks that witches rode to the Sabbath. This was perhaps a metaphoric way of saying that witches' experience were simply hashish dreams. Walker, 1988. The witches' flying ointments were in fact powerful entheogenic lotions that the witches applied to themselves, which besides hemp and mandrake also often contained powerful drug plants such as hemlock, henbane, and belladonna. These lotions had to be prepared and applied with knowledge, as the plants can be lethal if used improperly. J. 
Generally, these powerful ointments would send the witch into a coma-like state for around 36 hours, during which they would experience their shamanistic flight to the witch's Sabbath. The product of their powerful visionary hallucinations combined with set and setting. Idris Shah has commented on the Arabic root of witchcraft, pointing out that many of the words used in European witchcraft are from the Arabic language. As well, there is similarities in the circle dance of both cults, and Shah relates that in both cases they came to the witches through a diffusion of Sufi practices. A similar Gnostic dance involving Jesus in the center will be discussed later. Sufism is a later derivation of Gnosticism, and as Shah has related to the similar use of mandrake and other powerful hallucinogens to both the witches and certain dervish groups, it is interesting to note that the Gnostics can be identified as likely using these same sacraments. Also interesting is that both the witches and Gnostics were accused of sacrificing babies in their rites, as were the early Christians in general and the ancient Canaanites. With the witches accused of making a brew from the bodies or severed members of unbaptized babies, the mandrake root is human in shape. It is traditionally thought of as a tiny simulacrum of a human being. A tiny human being is a child. As a plant, we could hardly expect it to be duly baptized, and ingredients of the ointment seem to be this form of an unbaptized one. Shah, 1964. So... <laughs> When they talked about using the unbaptized child, they were talking about using mandrake roots. Yes, another code, sort of like Crowley's saying he was going to do child sacrifice, and what he meant was masturbate. Speaking of which, I've never said the word masturbation or menses or sperma so much in my life as the past uh, while today. The main teachings of the Tractate are believed to have historically existed since 185 Common Era and was still in use up until the 8th century by the Audians of Mesopotamia, Visa, 1988, from the Nag Hammadi. By comparison, the New Testament in its present form was compiled between 367 and 397 AD, or Common Era. The Nag Hammadi Library, Robinson, Editor, John N. Siever, 1988, Intro. Used in large doses or in powerful extracts, cannabis is capable of producing such visionary states. It is interesting to note that in the mid-1800s, Psychopharmacologist Louis Alphonse Carinet found similar out-of-body experiences to those attributed to the Zoroastrian heroes in tests done on subjects using large doses of hashish. The subjects reported visions of the afterlife identical with those we now know of as near-death experiences. Similar accounts were described by later 19th-century hashish experimenters Lord Dunsany and Gerard de Naval as well as by the early 20th century mystic and occultist Aleister Crowley, who all reported out-of-body experiences under the influence of hashish, in which they both felt great mysteries had been revealed to them. A number of such experiences from diverse sources have been recorded. Bennett et al., 1995. The next note on Aleister Crowley in Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible reads, Both alchemy and the Kabbalah can be seen as descriptions of consciousness that has component parts. Regardi, 1970. That's Israel Regardi, of course. An earlier work, Bennett et al., 1995, that would be green gold, um, pointed to a number of medieval alchemical references that mentioned the preparation of different entheogens for the alchemical crystallization of consciousness, as well as acknowledged references to the use of such substances for the ascent through the Kabbalistic Sephiroth. The magician Aleister Crowley, a devotee of the Kabbalah, went to great lengths to research the placement of different vegetable and mineral drugs. According to their effects on consciousness on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, a map of both the individual microcosmic man and the universal macrocosmic man, Adam Kadmon. Also a devotee of Tantrism and Gnosticism, Crowley utilized these substances in the initiation of both himself and others, and played a paramount role in their mass reintroduction into the 20th century occult movement. More recently, Dr. Rick Strassman, a longtime researcher of both psychedelic compounds and Zen Buddhist thought, has developed a rating scale for altered states of consciousness based upon the five skandhas, form, feeling, perception, consciousness, and volition which represent the Buddhist deconstruction of ongoing mental experience. Some Gnostic texts refer to five seals rather than seven. The next section of vast interest with a reference to Aleister Crowley 
follows, As with the Ministry of Truth in Orwell's 1984, the Church Fathers and rulers of the newly theocratic state ensured that only texts that authenticated the history and cosmology of the Church were allowed to survive. Evidently, some historical texts may only have survived because they were altered by Christian copyists to fit in with the history of the faith. John Dominic Crossan, well, there's a commentator I know well, from seminary days, suggests that such alterations occur in the works of Flavius Josephus, whose account of Jesus in his antiquities is referred to by many Christians as non-Christian evidence of Jesus' historical existence. Quote, Josephus's work were preserved and copied by Christian rather than Jewish editors. Such additions would have been easy to insert. Crossan, 1994. Crossan suggests the following italicized words from Josephus's Antiquities, 1863. That's 18th chapter, verse 63. Were likely the inserts of later Christian copyists. Now we're talking my language. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought a surprising feat, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless marvelous things about him, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has to this day not disappeared. As quoted in Russell, 1998, quote, Christian propagandists called for the destruction of paganism because of the prevalence of homosexuality in the religions of the old nature cults. Augustine repeatedly called attention to this love of sexuality and urged that it be destroyed. He was particularly incensed by the worship of the Great Mother, whose chief priests were gay transvestites. After ridiculing various rural sex gods, he says, The same applies to the effeminates consecrated to the Great Mother, who violate every canon of decency in men and women. They were to be seen until just the other day in the streets of Carthage with their pomaded hair and powdered faces, gliding along with womanish languor and demanding from the shopkeeper the means of their depraved existence, Augustine quoted in Evans, 1978. A tenet that lasted well over a millennia, as to later, medieval witch hunters, the figure of the devil became sex personified. The Malleus Maleficarum, a manual used for detecting witches, stated the power of the devil lies in the privy parts of men. Many times women were condemned precisely because they were associated with sex. The heterosexual men who controlled Christianity viewed sexual feelings as sinful. Since women aroused these feelings, they too must be sinful. The condemnation of women was a natural consequence of the condemnation of sex. Later, indicating the use of another powerful entheogen, possibly the sacred mushroom, the ancient text continues with its symbolic description that beside the tree of life stood the tree of acquaintance, gnosis, having the strength of God. Its glory is like the moon when fully radiant. And this tree is to the north of paradise, so that it might arouse the souls from the torpor of the demons, in order that they might approach the tree of life and eat its fruit, and so condemn the authorities and their angels. It has been estimated that one acre of hemp could produce four times as much paper as one acre of trees over the same 20-year period. In relation, 2,000 years earlier than the Gnostics believed that humans contained the highest concentration of light, thus humanity's role in the return of light back to its ultimate source. The most balanced and richest single source of essential fatty acids is hemp seed oil. As quoted by Allegro, who noted in relation that Pliny made reference the drug Creston, the juice of which smeared on the body, gave health and granted wishes. And then we jump to a, an amazing note. These are endnotes, which I'm uh, sharing that I think are relevant leading up to some Crowley stuff. If you deal drugs, we're going to kill you. 
stated American Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich himself, like both the President and Vice President of the U.S., a former cannabis spoker. Gingrich, who hoped to completely eliminate illicit drug use by the year 2001, with the contradictory intellect of Augustine, went so far as to suggest that such a death penalty should be applied to anyone bringing more than 50 grams of marijuana, slightly less than two ounces, into America. Abel, 1980. Unknown to Lindsay... His interpreter is Hal Lindsey, the great dispensationalist theologian of evangelical fundamentalism. His interpretation of Revelation's reference to sorcery, possibly indicating the rise of a drug cult at the end of the millennium, is similar to medieval apocryphal Muslim prophecies that have been interpreted as references to cannabis. The Muslim stories are, of course, apocryphal, meaning that they were not written until after the time of Muhammad, and are not considered holy writ, or the words of the prophet, and were probably written in reaction to the heretical Sufi movement. But in all fairness to the reader's free will and choice, they should be mentioned. Writings attributed to Mahmud al-Muhammadi have the prophet state, There is a tree called Gubariya, an accursed tree. It will appear at the end of time. Those who eat from it do not belong to us. The following was written during the Middle Ages by Hudayfa b. al-Yaman. I went together with the prophet into the countryside. He saw a tree and shook his head. I asked him why he was shaking his head, and he replied, A time will come upon my nation when they will eat from the leaves of this tree and get intoxicated. They are the worst of the worst. They are the bira of my nation, as God has nothing to do with them. Of course... There are many positive references to cannabis found in the literature of Islam, like the following, which was attributed to the Almighty himself. Quote, when God created this plant and called for it to appear before him, it went to him, and he said, Be my might, majesty, splendor, and purification. I have not created a plant nobler and finer than you are. Nowhere else have I let you dwell but in clean minds and the clean stomachs of my servants. Rosenthal, 1971. The reason for these extremely contradictory statements concerning marijuana is that hemp is neither good nor evil in itself. These connotations are of human design. As a great master once said, there is nothing unclean unto itself. Cannabis is whatever you want to make of it or see in it, and this is for the individual to decide for themselves. The fruit shall befit the partaker. Note, halcyon means false heaven, and this peculiar drug alleviates feelings of guilt and anxiety. George Bush was reputedly doped up on this stuff when he vomited at a dinner with a Japanese prime minister. Further, vast pharmaceutical conglomerates with powerful lobby groups who battle against any form of competition make billions from the strictly licensed distribution and sales of medication to physically ill people who require them to survive. Such pharmaceutical lobby groups offer up some of the strongest opposition to natural medicines such as cannabis, and it is estimated that up to 30% of the pharmaceuticals they currently supply could be replaced by this natural herb, which they would hardly be able to control and profit from were it made legal, as people can easily grow it themselves. In our own time, just as Christian apologists rejected the holy plant and the chrism which held it in order to sell their religion to the state, so today, there are people who have joined the fight to legalize this sacred plant, who now suggest that we remove the psychoactive spirit, THC, from the tree of life itself in order to make the other commercial qualities of the plant more acceptable to Rome's modern counterparts, the government, and the public at large. Hopefully, we won't live to see history repeat itself. Genetically altered cannabis requires more pesticides. THC is a natural bug deterrent and chemical fertilizers than its natural THC-containing ancestors and produces a vastly inferior crop. Note, the ancestral memory holding power of the incense of the saints could also conceivably have left a trace in the Tammuz hymns. On the day which Tammuz rises up, when the flute of lapis lazuli and the ring of carnelian rise up with him, when male and female mourners rise up with him, may the dead also rise and inhale the incense. Ringgren, 1973. 
Notes uh, regarding William Butler Yeats, Herman Hess remembering the magic cigarette in Steppenwolf, Umberto Echo, Allen Ginsberg, and Jack Kerouac. Smith notes that Kerouac's 1959 novel, Dr. Sachs, was full of Gnostic themes, telling the story of how Dr. Sachs hoped to rid the world of its evil ruler by searching the world for herbs that he knew someday he would perfect into an alchemic, almost poison art that would enable humanity to overcome the tyranny of the evil Archon. Both Ginsburg and Kerouac were introduced into Gnosticism by their university professor Raymond Weaver in the 1940s. This indicates the profound influence the ancient Gnostic heresies had on the pioneers of the Beat and later hippie movements, both of which assimilated a number of Gnostic-like themes into their philosophies. And a final note, the focusing of one's will on a talisman is commented on by another cannabis using Gnostic, Alistair Crowley. Here then, Crowley writes, must I write concerning talismans for thine instruction. Know first that there are certain vehicles proper for the incarnation of thy will. I instance paper, whereon by thine art thou writest a symbolic representation of thy will, so that when thou next seest it, thou art reminded of that will. It's a very interesting note, uh, a way of looking at talismans that I would say is quite, quite accurate. Um, speaks to the psychological model to a degree, of course, as Crowley fell into for some time. Similarly, the occultist and Kabbalist Dion Fortune wrote, It is well known to mystics that if a man meditates on upon a symbol around which certain ideas have been associated by past meditation, he will obtain access to those ideas, even if the glyph has never been elucidated to him. Fortune, 1935. Similar concepts occur in yoga, also involving seed sounds and longer mantras, which, when repeated by the dedicated practitioner, are believed to enable them to tap into the cosmological ideas which have been condensed into the sound by its creators. It's also worth noting there's references uh, and stories of planetary astral travel induced by cannabis uh, covered in accounts of Lord Dunsany and Aleister Crowley, referred to in Bennett's earlier work in 1995, Green Gold. Finally, the last reference to Crowley in Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible um, follows a really interesting quote from Riser in 1958. That man literally does stand midway between the super-universes and the infra-universes, that he is, in a sense, at the crossroads of the universe, is indicated by calculations which show that while about 10 to 27th power atoms make up a human body, 10 to 28th human bodies constitute enough material to build a star. Man lives in a middle-scale universe, suspended between two infinities, and he appears to possess characteristics from both domains. Quoted in Andrews and Vinkenug, 1967, Reiser's comments are of particular interest when it is noted that in both Kabbalistic and Gnostic philosophy, humanity also marks the midpoint between the descent of spirit into matter and its return to the divine mind, which is achieved through Gnosis. David Loy points to another interesting analogy, noting that at birth, the number of neurons in the human brain, approximately 100 billion, is about the same as the numbers of stars in our own galaxy. Quote, when we look up on a clear night, we are seeing in these bright billions of energy points ranging throughout space a giant and seemingly endless analog of our own brain. Astronomer V.A. Fursoff suggests that everything is held together by some kind of mind stuff composed of elementary particles like neutrinos existing with a special kind of mental space governed by different laws. These entities could be called Mindons, Loy, 1983. Such musings help to bring a deeper understanding to Aleister Crowley's comments of some decades before. Man is a microcosm. That is, an image demonstrated that the perceptible universe is an extension or phantasm of the nervous system. Crowley, 1938. Quote, Jesus said, when you make the inside like the outside and the above like the below, then you will enter the kingdom. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and 
the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.